BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 546 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. It's the day after the 4th of July. And I'm looking, you know, with this whole Supreme Court case thing, or the Supreme Court, rather, this, uh, you know, opening as a result of Justice Anthony Kennedy resigning, retiring, I guess would be the word. I'm concerned that this could be the beginning of a new, uh, what's referred to as the Lochner era, and I'll, I'll tell you what that means, and that that, in turn, could lead to essentially a, a, a new civil war in the United States or a breaking up of the United States. Let me, let me explain. The Lochner era ran from the late 1890s until 1937. And it was a Supreme Court that struck down child labor laws, said, hey, you know, no problem. It's fine for 10-year-olds to work in factories. It was a Supreme Court that struck down minimum wage laws, said, you know, requiring minimum wage was an inappropriate intrusion of government into the, into the uh, right of a business and their employees to privately contract with each other. These, by the way, are positions that are still held by libertarians like, for example, you know, Charles Koch or presumably uh, Robert Mercer. 
and others. Uh, they struck down regulations of the banking industry, saying the government has no business regulating banking. They, uh, in, which, by the way, in, in many ways, because keep in mind, this court started in 1897, um, doing all this. It became this, you know, ag there was a, finally a fifth justice put on there, a, a tie-breaking justice that just flipped the court to the right. Uh, they struck down the law. So, so that led right to the great crash of 1929, striking down the banking laws. They struck down laws regulating the insurance industry. Said, so, you know, again, government has no business interfering in the so-called free market, in the private marketplace. They struck down laws regulating the transportation industry. And they, I mean, they kept doing this. This was like, you know, a 40-year period from 1897 to 1937. And, uh, you know, they, they invalidated labor laws, uh, the, you know, and protections for unions. They said that's not the government's business. This was an extremely libertarian, or what today we would call you know, conservative, Republican, uh, Koch-funded, you know, Freedom Caucus court. So just kind of put that in your biocomputer and, and consider this. And, and by the way, our number is 202-808-9925 uh, if you would like to weigh in on how you think this is going to play out if we end up with a new Lochner court. If, 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 if Donald Trump puts, you know, and, and it's increasingly looking like every single one of the nominees that he's evaluating, every single one of them, is, is one of these just extreme right-wing ideologues. Uh, there's a piece in today's Washington Post about Amy Coney Barrett, who almost certainly will strike down aggressively, would strike down Roe v. Wade. But it goes way beyond Roe v. Wade. I mean, this, this is, uh, and she also called for a more, in 2003, in an article she wrote, she called for a more flexible understanding of stare decisis, and there is established law. So whether it is the law establishing Social Security that the Lochner era court originally thought was socialism, uh, what, you know, I, I, they didn't strike it down, but, but they were inclined, they, they damn near did. I mean, this is, this is why in 1936, during the election of 36, um, Franklin Roosevelt said, I'm going to, I'm going to pack the court. You know, screw this stuff. I'm, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna add more justices to the court, and I'm going to appoint them because this court is fighting everything we're doing with the New Deal. Well, now we may have a court that actually wants to take down the New Deal, not just the Great Society, but the New Deal itself. So if one of Trump's nominees gets on the court, <clears throat> or when, because it's, it's pretty much a certainty it's going to happen eventually, and if they are one of these Federalist Society, uh, you know, again, a right-wing organization that grew out of, the, out of the Powell memo, funded by the right-wing, the billion, you know, the Petro billionaires, if one of these nominees, 100% of them coming through the Federalist Society, is put on the bench, and we end up back in the Lochner era. We end up with a Supreme Court that strikes down Social Security, that strikes down Medicare, that strikes down Medicaid, that strikes down all forms of welfare programs, as the Lochner Court did, if, uh, that strikes down our child labor laws, that strikes down our minimum wage laws, that strikes down all vestiges of an employee's right to unionize, that basically turns America over to the corporate institutions. If that happens, on the one hand, at the same time that the vast Ameri majority of Americans don't want this, and this is a really important point, at the same time that the vast majority of Americans don't want this, what happens? I mean, look at, look at the, uh, the study of Pew, you know, just did a, did a new survey, the, the Pew Research Center, which is you know, not a liberal institution. This is not some left-wing think tank. This is just, you know, right down the middle, endowed by a wealthy family to provide facts to the public. And what they found is that overall 67% of Americans now believe that our government is run by special interests, period. I'm among them. I wouldn't say period, but largely. But here's where it gets interesting. If you look at Citizens United, 
which, by the way, was the decision was written by Anthony Kennedy, who's retiring. If you look at Citizens United, 70% of Democrats, 67% of Republicans think that the court should overturn Citizens United. In other words, more than two-thirds, nearly three-quarters of Americans believe that Citizens United should be undone, that money is a corrupting influence in politics. And if we go back to a Lochner-type court, if, if Trump appoints one of these Federalist Society judges and the Democrats are not capable of blocking it, or a couple of them even collaborate, and, you know, inevitably that's going to happen. He's got another two and a half years. If that happens, and say 20 states, because the, the, way, the way that this will be done, you know, when the, when the courts struck down the child labor laws, for example, uh, it, basically what happened was some states said we're going to have child labor laws and other states said we're not, which is, you know, how the court wanted it. In other words, it's, it's the whole Tenth Amendment thing, states' rights. Leave it up to the states. Now, states can't f functionally administer Social Security programs or, uh, you know, uh, perhaps a large state. New York and California probably could, maybe Florida, maybe Texas, but pretty much every other state in the union, maybe Illinois, but pretty much every other state in the union would not be able to administer a single-payer health care system like Medicare is and Medicaid is because they just don't have the critical mass. Vermont tried it. They actually passed the law, got a governor elected based on, on the promise that he would put the law into effect, and then they discovered with only 600,000 people in the state, that's not a large enough mass to have a single-payer health care system. So if this court strikes down Medicare at the federal level and states try to do it, there's, you're going to end up with you know, a half a dozen or a dozen states that actually can do it and the same with Social Security. It's a, it's a single-payer pension program. If this gets struck down at the fed, if these get struck down at the federal level, a law, you know, and, and of course, obviously, Roe v. Wade, abortion, and child labor laws, and the right to unionize. If these get struck down, there's going to be, you know, 20, 25 states that basically go back to the, to the way the law was in the 1890s. Workers will have no rights. Women will have no rights. Minorities will have very few rights. Uh, you know, uh, the court has already begun this process, gutting the, uh, you know, under John Roberts back a couple of years ago, gutting the Voting Rights Act. Are we going to end up basically two countries where the blue states have a high quality of life and high standard of living and, and health care for all and, and they get more and more like Canada and the red states... Uh, say, hey, you know, whatever the billionaires want, we'll just, you know, people should just trust to charity. If you, you want your health pay, your, 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 your hospital bill paid, go to the local church and ask. That's what charity's for. That's what churches are for. And, and abortion is illegal and, and uh, you know, women are being put in prison and doctors are being run out of town. Could we end up as two nations? Or have we already to a certain area, to, an, to a certain extent? But the, the larger question is, you know, could this happen in a way that could essentially be a second civil war, not necessarily a shooting war, but just this, this radical bifurcation, this radical separation of East and West Coast America from the middle of the United States. Now, the upper Midwest, you know, used to be part of the East and West Coast. In other words, used to be affluent because they had all these great manufacturing jobs. Those are by and large gone. So, you know, that's poor, too. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So what happens? How does this play out? What, what do you see happening? I'll tell you what I see happening after the break. And we'll pick up your phone calls and we'll talk about this. So here's what I think is going to happen. And, and, the, and the big question in my mind is how far will it go and will it provoke a response? And will that response be, you know, like the French Revolution or will that response be something very, very muted? Uh, you know, and I'm certainly not calling for a French Revolution response, but, you know, there are people out there who are, mostly on the right, oddly enough, or not oddly enough, but, you know, predictably enough. But uh, what I think is going to happen is an extension of what is already happening, right? When the Supreme Court, ro you know, rolled back voting rights, you had about 30 states immediately jump in to, to, to suppress your right to vote, to make it harder and harder and harder to vote. 
And uh, some of them have been insanely successful at this, literally removing millions of people from their voting rolls over the last decade or so. When the Supreme Court rolled back protections uh, you know, for unionization, um, they, you saw a massive union busting on a state-by-state -state basis. You, I mean, this goes all the way back to Taft-Hartley in 1947. When, you know, when the Supreme Court drilled a hole in Obamacare and said a state doesn't have to expand Medicaid so that everybody in the state has health insurance regardless of their income, but only rich people now or people who are, you know, have really good jobs are going to end up with health insurance. What you had was a bunch of states who said, okay, cool, we'll do that. You know, we'll, we'll go along with that. We'll let people just die in the streets. I mean, you've, and, and you had other states that said, no, we're going to intervene. We're going to re-regulate the markets ourselves. California was at the lead of that. So I think that what will happen is this, this, this splitting apart of America. Uh, you know, you've, you've got in some red states right now, Louisiana, Mississippi, you have infant mortality rates and maternal mortality rates that are literally third world rates of death of children, newborn children and mothers in pregnancy. Uh, three times what the death rate is in Canada, for example, or what the death rate is in California. So we have these states already that have become basically these massive pockets of poverty because of their governor's policy. I mean, Matt Bevins, uh, he's uh, Tennessee or Kentucky. Uh, I always mix those two states up, but Matt Bevins, the, the newly, I'm pretty sure it's, it's, uh, it's Tennessee, but wh whichever, one of those two states. This guy was just, you know, elected governor. He replaced a Democrat. He's the new Republican governor. And he just, you know, made a major cut to, to Medicaid. It's Kentucky. Thank you, Sean. And, and uh, so in Kentucky, you know, he's, he's going to, he's going to, he's literally knocking a million people or 600,000, I think was the number off the health care rolls in that state because the Supreme Court said he could do it. And he's a Republican. So when we get a Federalist Society on the court, and that's pretty much a certainty eventually, and the court becomes like the Lochner Court was from 1897 until 1937 when Franklin Roosevelt scared the bejesus out of him and said, I'm going to pack the court and actually started the process of doing it. The president and Congress have the ability to do that. And the court said, okay, okay, we're going to change our mind. We're going to go along with you. I mean, that's literally what happened, right? But I don't see somebody in the White House right now who's going to say to the court, oh, you know, you're, you can't do away with child labor laws. You can't do away with the right to unionize. Keep in mind, this, as, as I said earlier, this is not my father's Republican Party. The Republican Party platform of 1956, 1956, this is the Dwight Eisenhower's Republican Party. I am reading from their party platform. The record of performance of the Republican administration on behalf of our working men and women goes still further. The federal minimum wage has been raised for more than 2 million workers. Social Security has been extended to an additional 10 million workers. And the benefits of Social Security have been raised for 6.5 million people. The protection of unemployment insurance has, brought to, has been brought to 4 million additional workers. Increased work, workmen's compensation benefits for longshoremen and harbor workers. Increased retirement work benefits. Increased wage, uh, wage increases. Improved welfare and pension plans for federal employees. Which, by the way, they just, you know, the Supreme Court just struck down. Uh, the laws which protect the working standards of our people. It opens, the Republican Party platform of 56 opens with this quote from Dwight Eisenhower. Quote, in all those things which deal with people, be liberal, be human. That's how it opens. But then in 1980, when David Koch ran for vice president of the Libertarian Party ticket, and I think it's safe to assume his brother Charles, who now basically runs their political operation, shares his perspective. These are the actual quotes from the platform on which David Koch ran for vice president. We urge the repeal of federal campaign finance laws. We favor the abolition of Medicaid and Medicare. We favor the repeal of the fraudulent, virtually bankrupt, and increasingly oppressive social security system. We propose the abolition of the government post office. We support the repeal of all minimum wage laws. We advocate the complete separation of education and state. Government ownership, operation, regulation, and subsidies of schools and colleges should be ended. 
We support the abolition of the Environmental Protection Agency. We support the abolition of the Food and Drug Administration. We support the end of all welfare programs and tax-supported services for children. We oppose, oppose all government welfare relief You're projects. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. We oppose aid to the poor programs. We want a repeal of the Occupational Safety and Healthy Act and all consumer product safety laws. Really? Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them you know, are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth, uh, tooth, electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never th- used an electric toothbrush, I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, it's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim, it's lightweight, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a, you know, a little AAA battery inside that powers it and powers it for months at a time uh, be, between changes. And it, it does a really great job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a, the perfect two-minute clean. So check this thing out. And it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it in to travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush, much, much smaller than your, than your big electric toothbrushes. And you can find out all about it at getquip.com slash Tom. That's G-E-T, getquip, Q-U-I-P, dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com slash Tom for more information. It's only 25 bucks, and they send you the refills, the, the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com slash Tom. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Boy, this is amazing. Credo Action, I just got, uh, you know, one of their, their things. Uh, 60% of Trump's incarcerated immigrants are held in prison, private prisons built by companies like CoreCivic and GeoGroup. And apparently there's an enormous amount of funding for these organizations by uh, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, and BlackRock. Uh, they all hold stock in these companies. And uh, the big banks also keep GeoGroup and CoreCivic in business with lucrative loans. And uh, you can see the whole thing over at uh, credoaction.org. Fascinating stuff. But, you know, again, if the Supreme Court goes total total right wing, uh, you know, there will be no checks on this. Right? No checks on it. So your thoughts. Rick in Irwin, Tennessee. Hey, Rick. Thanks for calling. What's up? Hi. How you doing, Tom? Good. Good. What's on your mind? What do you think about this? I've been sitting here uh, drinking beer and smoking a cigar and reading the Constitution, and uh, I read Article uh, 3, and uh, it seems to me if Franklin Roosevelt tried to pack the court, what we ought to do is we ought to get a Democratic president and a Congress and a Senate and shrink the court. Instead of trying to put more on it, knock it down to seven, and we can get these two idiots that... uh, Trump is going to appoint off, or if he appoints four, knock it down to five. Yeah, actually, you're, 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 you know, you're right. And, and as radical as, as, you know, it sounds what you're proposing, Rick, as radical as that may sound, the, the Supreme Court, the size of the Supreme Court, the number of people in the Supreme Court has been adjusted, I think, seven times in our history. And it's gone from seven to nine to 11 to nine, as I recall. But in any case, it's been adjusted a number of times. And Congress has that explicit power. It's Article 3, Section 2, Paragraph 2, uh, to regulate the court. And one of those regulations is establishing the size of the court. So, you know, it's not inconceivable that a Democratic president, House, and Senate, although it would take probably a supermajority, 60 senators, which we may have after 2020, who knows, that could, uh, you know, if the Supreme Court went totally nuts, like they did during the Lochner era, could say, could simply pass a law saying that the Supreme Court shall have seven justices, not nine, and the two most recently appointed justices uh, become justices emeritus. In other words, they're retired. And uh, you could let them hang around and offer their opinions or something, but they lose their vote. Certainly, Congress could do that. And, but, you know, that doesn't address what happens to the United States. I mean, you know, what, what might happen to our nation? Bob in Ashburn, Virginia, you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, hi, Tom. Um, you know, I, what you're speaking about put me in mind of a really interesting talk by the late Gore Vidal that mm-hmm. he gave to the National Press Club in 1994. 
and it's actually available on YouTube. Um, Gore predicted, you know, uh, Gore could be very prescient, mm-hmm. and he predicted that occurrences within the first several decades of the coming century, which was now, would lead eventually to the devolution of the country. That that it would, as he described, it would be split into smaller, more workable units that would be essentially autonomous. And Washington would become, for all intents and purposes, a ceremonial center. Yeah. Well, and that's the direction you know, we're moving. I mean, that's that's what David Koch campaigned on. You know, that that is the libertarian vision for America. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Well, I don't think I don't think that's what Gore was was proposing, though. No, it's what he was. That was that was his nightmare scenario. Uh, Absolutely. Ah, You know, Gore Vidal was a good guy. I'm very familiar with him. In fact, in his in his autobiography, his last autobiography, Point to Point Navigation, the last two Mm -hmm. chapters both cite writings by this guy, Tom Hartman. So I've I've paid a lot of attention to Gore Vidal as a result of that. Um, But uh, and he, you know, in in a favorable way. I mean, he spoke very well of me Mm -hmm. and and of the, the writing that I had done. And I think I think you're right, and I think that that's already happening. This is my point. I mean, you know, Mississippi yeah. is is basically, and you know, any state with a Republican governor is increasingly being run like a third world country, and the yep. quality of life of people in those states is increasingly like like a, a third world country. Mm-hmm. Excellent point, Bob. Yep. Thanks a lot for the call, and thanks for making it, Brian in uh, North Branch, Minnesota. Brian, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, yeah, it seems that. Many of these wars are prefaced by some violent incident. You know, we had uh, the Boston Massacre before the American Revolution, Bleeding Kansas, John Brown's Raid before the Civil War. I think Charlottesville could be a precursor to a civil war, and I do think that a Lockyer-era-type judge appointment will lead to a shooting war with, with drone strikes, cyber attacks, tanks, the works. Of yeah, Wow. See, I think that there's already uh, the beginnings of a cyber civil war going on in the United States right now. And, you know, from doxing to, her, to online harassment to, to outright hacking. Um, but, uh, boy, a shooting war. I, 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 I hope it would never come to, to something like that. But, but I think your point of, of Charlottesville, if, if there are a lot more Charlottesville that happen, and by the way, they are happening on a fairly regular basis. They're just not largely being covered by the media. Uh, but the right-wing media is covering them and amplifying them and, and celebrating them. And if one of those things turns violent or if somebody gets killed or, or, serious, or a number of people get killed or seriously hurt, it could be a real mess. Yeah, excellent point, Brian. Thanks for calling and making it. Rich in uh, Calumet, Michigan. Hey, Rich, what's up? Well, first off, I want to apologize. Last time I called, I, I kind of got on a, a depressing run about how horrible things are not only for me, but a lot of people. Um, but basically, um, but they are horrible I, I, for a lot. I of kind people. of agree with our, our last your last caller there. Mm. I, I really see it, it's something to do with the human condition. We seem to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah. And when they block history, so people can't go back and and reflect on the problems that we have to to evolve to become better. We're doomed, basically, to, to, to make the same mistakes. Yeah. And kids, you know, in our schools today, they do not learn about the Lochner Court. They do not learn about uh, yeah, the, the labor fights gone. in the 1930s. I'm sorry? I said civics and everything are gone. Yeah. My daughter, I mean, she's, she's you know, in the middle of going into high school. And, and so many things that I learned in school, they, they just don't teach. That's right. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's it's... It's mind-boggling. Yeah, and and, for, and you know, lack of a better word, but I, I really, I really see you know the the whole thing with the Pinkertons. The, the uh, actually, Free Speech had a really good program on a plutocracy. It was a, like a mini series, mm-hmm. and I urge people to to watch it because it really opens up the mind of what's gone on and how we may be able to prevent some of these things to happen. Yeah. Well, that's, that's going to be one of the keys, but the Supreme Court could be the catalyst to all of this. Rich, excellent points all. Thanks for the call. Uh, Alan in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Alan. Hey, Dr. Hartman. Um, it's Tom, to and, I'm, and my doctorate is honorary, so, you know, it's not necessary. What's up? 
Uh, well, what I wanted to say was we we think uh, some of me and my buddies we already think that there's already two Americas from the disparity uh, of the criminal justice system how uh, that's been uh, distributed. Um, just the terminology, white supremacy and minority, there's a division at that point. So mm-hmm. at this point, I really think there's already two Americas. I really do, I think. Well, this is, I, you I know, John Edwards. Yeah, John Edwards campaigned on this in 2004, you know, for vice president along with John Kerry. And, uh, you know, the, the two Americas. And, and he was very clear there are two Americas and, and, and there's two major bifurcations. As, as you're uh, pointing out, Alan, uh, there's black America and white America and black America has... You know, the average uh, African-American family in the United States has a net worth of around $5,000. The average white family in the United States has a net worth of around $80,000. Or at least that was the case during the 2004 election. I haven't updated my numbers since then. But that, you know, by John Edwards just pounded those numbers. And then also you've got, you know, the poorer states, in quotes, which tend to have large black populations, but, but not always. Um, you've got these, these poorer states, the ones that are run by these laissez-faire Republicans, where you've got high poverty rates, high unemployment, or high unemployment rates, high, you know, uh, high sickness rates, high bankruptcy rates from medical expenses. So, yeah, spot on. Very, very well said. Nick in Birmingham, Alabama. Nick, your thoughts? Hi, Tom. Uh, it's my first time calling in. Thank you. Uh, my, thought is, my thought is that with the upcoming fight over the Supreme Court pick, we know Trump's going to nominate someone you know, as far to the right as possible. Yep. And I think the Democrats' only option is to revoke something called unanimous consent. Now, for anything to happen in the Senate, uh, practically anything, I mean, even I think for them to close business at the end of the day, they need uh, consent of all 100 senators. And 99% of the time, that's always given. But all it takes is one member to object. That can be anyone. It can be Chuck Schumer. It can be Claire McCaskill. It can be anybody. All they have to do is say, oh, I ask unanimous consent on X, Y, Z motion, and all it takes is one of them to say, I object, and it's got to go to a member vote. They could bog down the Senate. It could take them all day. But then it goes to a member vote, and all it requires is a simple majority. You can't filibuster unanimous consent. Right, but it'll just slow them down, is what I'm saying. If for every single procedure it requires a member vote, I mean, it could take them all day to pass a single measure. Well, didn't the Republicans do that uh, with some frequency during the Obama presidency? Um, not on everything. Uh I mean, you know, sure, sure. If it was, if it was something that they that they weren't, you know, all about. Yeah. So, uh, so basically, uh, what you're talking about here is is a strategy, Nick. And I know there's other people talking about strategies to basically block a uh, a Supreme Court nominee. Because now we're going to have a four-four court, which is, you know, when we had a four-four court during that year. Uh, actually turned out okay, you know, not not terrible, right. but not wonderful, but okay. That we're, that that if we right. can maintain a four-four court until after the 2020 election, by uh, Democrats, you know, gumming up the works in the, the case that you're talking about, or there's a major campaign going in the media right now to encourage Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski to si- simply quit caucusing with the with the Republicans and become Democrats. And, and, you know, if they were to become Democrats, you know, the Democratic Party would embrace them and all kinds of wonderful stuff would happen. Um, That seems to me like probably the most viable way to really gum up the works is to flip one or both of those two women and and to use the court and the uh, uh, virtual certainty that the Federalist Society, particularly if he he, uh, appoints uh, Amy, what's her name, you know, this this woman who is, you know, openly anti-abortion. Uh, and and oh, yeah. has been throughout her career and has written legal papers on it and made legal decisions on it. And, and she's just a brand new federal judge. She was just put on the bench in November by Trump. Um, you know, if well, they, only, they only want her for the optics so that when the 5-4 opinion banning abortion comes down, they can say, oh, it was written by a woman. This is exactly. an anti-woman. Measure. Exactly. No, I, you know, yeah, I get it. And Trump has this, this choice. I mean, the two most prominent members are, are Amy, who is anti uh, abortion and Kavanaugh, the, the the man I'm forgetting his first name, who is uh, who has over and over repeatedly written and spoken about how a president, a sitting president, cannot be indicted and cannot even be subpoenaed. You know, he he can just say, you know, I don't have to talk to you guys. You have, you know, the courts have no authority over me. I'm the king. And uh, so Trump is trying to decide which of these two to put on. Does he satisfy the religious right or does he protect his own butt? And, and if Kavanaugh is also anti-abortion, he gets a twofer. 
and then you know another white man man goes on the court. So you know we'll see how this plays out. But but uh, you know gumming up the works. I mean there are some strategies. Thank you for that point, Nick. Gumming up the works is a strategy. It I, whether it's a strategy that can last two and a half years, I'm very skeptical. Flipping Murkowski and Collins, that would be a major coup. That would save the republic. But I'm very skeptical that the, that that'll happen. And so. If this goes forward and we end up with a locker kind of court, what happens to our country? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Could there, for example, be a mass exodus from red states into blue states? And could the blue states start saying, hey, we're going to build a wall? Okay. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Professor Nancy McLean. She is the William Chafee Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University, the author of five books. Her most recent, uh, and in fact, we've had her on about this, and we did a little book report on this book that's in circulation, and you can see over on on, uh, YouTube, on our uh, youtube.com slash Tom Hartman. Uh, this is an amazing book. It's Democracy and Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. Nancy, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back with you, Tom. Thanks. Uh, you know, when, when you and I talked, when your book first came out, I had not read the entire book. I'd read maybe a third of it. And I was very mm-hmm. impressed by it. I thought it was great. I think, you know, the history you were doing, the, the, you know, digging up all those old documents and, and, and finding, all, all, you know, fi- finding mm-hmm. out about, you know, this guy who was kind of at the center of all this. But I, but I, I finally finished it a couple of weeks ago, and I read the in the in your last chapter, you talk <laughs> about how these guys who are financing the hard right, the Kochs, the the mm-hmm. Mercers, the you know the, this this whole bunch of right wing billionaires, actually, well, actually, I want to ask you, you you used the word favela as I recall or barrio yes. in that mm-hmm. last chapter, and said that they envision or their policies and vision, and I'd, I'd love you to clarify it for me, um, that America would begin to look like Mexico City, you know, that, that instead of just slums, we would have, you know, massive architectures of, of, you know, handmade, homemade cardboard houses. And frankly, this is, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon now. I, I used to live in D.C. Um, I'm seeing this happen. We call it homeless encampments, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where, where you've got a park with, you know, 200 people living in it. And I saw it in Hawaii, in Honolulu. There's a giant mm-hmm. park, and it's basically been taken over. It's turned into a little city. It's, a, it's a, uh, an American version of a favela. Can you speak to that and what and how much worse that might get if we uh, get a Lochner-type Supreme Court justice out of Donald Trump who says, mm-hmm. hey, you know, it's, I, I'm keeping in mind the Lochner Court, the Supreme Court actually from 1897 to 1937, struck down child labor laws, struck down the right to unionize yeah. laws, struck down environmental protection, struck down workers' rights, struck down minimum wage, all these things. If we get another court like that and it starts doing this and they've already gutted our, our, our uh, Voting Rights Act and, and other things, um, and, and of course Citizens United, if we get this... This could be America. I mean, you know, speak yeah. to that and, and, and how these guys who are funding all this think that's a good thing. Yes. Uh, I have to say, from the research that I did, Tom, and, and what I've learned, you know, since publication uh, that has confirmed it, um, it, Americans do not understand at all how radical this Koch-led donor network project to transform our public life is. Uh, it is so radical that, as you say, essentially they see the world of uh, capitalism, early 19th century capitalism, as described by Charles Dickens, as a good thing, right? So they think that government should only have three functions. It should ensure the rule of law, it should uh, guarantee social order, and it should provide for the national defense. Other than that, government has no place in their order. So right. courts, should not courts, be allowing minimum army. wages. What's that? Courts, cops, and the army. That's it. That's all they should do. Exactly. Courts, cops, and the army. That's a good way to put it. Uh, yes. 
so government should not be providing things like Social Security or Medicare. It should in no way be buttressing workers' rights to organize collectively, because for workers to organize collectively is to them a form of gangsterism, right? It shouldn't be allowed. Everybody should have their compensation decided by their market value. So if you are not particularly well-trained or you didn't do well in school or you stayed home to raise your kids and now you're re-entering the labor force – tough on you, you will fall to the bottom and that will be your fault. Um, so it really, I mean, these are people who thought that Scrooge was right. right? I mean, right. there's actually an article I found to that effect. Oh, well, I, you know, the, actually Russell Kirk wrote about this in 1951 or 52, uh, I think it was, uh -huh. and basically pointed out that that was one of the most stable politically, one of the most stable eras in, in the history of the last millennia was, you know, you had a very, very small a, working, a very, very small, super rich class, a very, very small middle class, which Scrooge was a, me a member of, by the way. Scrooge was, mm -hmm. you know, he was a small business owner with a single employee. He ran a smaller company than mine. And, and so he was the, 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 the middle class shop owner kind of thing. And then you have this huge class of, of, of the working class with maximum wage laws to prevent them from acquiring enough wealth that they could then have political power. And they view this as the most stable system. It's, it's basically a variation on serfdom. Back to you, Nancy. Forgive my interrupting. Yes, absolutely. And with no popular participation or very limited popular participation. And that's why the voter suppression, the extreme gerrymandering to let these Republican elected officials choose their voters rather than vice versa, why all of these radical rules changes are essential to make this work. And we should add here that not only uh, has this cause ensured that um, Mitch McConnell in the Senate gave them uh, a, a Supreme Court seat that should have gone to the previous president, but they are also organizing for a constitutional convention, the first state right. convened constitutional convention. Right. In and the they're two states and short they of that lined right up now. 28 of 34 states needed to do that. So mm, this cause states. is so serious about radically changing the rules. They see democracy and capitalism, or at least democracy as we've known it over the 20th century, as antithetical, right? That democracy uh, is a problem for capitalism, democracy as we've known it. So they want to radically change the rules in order uh, to um, uh, achieve the kind of dominance that they see as their due. So Americans really need to understand this. I, you know, I know people are overwhelmed. Many people are working two jobs. They've got sandwich crisis between kids and grandparents. There's so many things going on in people's lives. But what happens over the next, you know, one to three years is going to be decisive for the future for as long as we can foresee, because these guys are so determined to bring about permanent radical rules change. So we have to be paying attention. Let me ask you to put your profit hat on, uh, your, your, your analyst, you know, the mm -hmm. looking forward into the future, which you talk about uh, a little bit toward the end of the book. And we're talking with Nancy McLean, uh, the author of a book that you have to read. It's called Democracy in Chains. It's just an absolute uh, expose of how we got where we are and where they're trying to take us. What happens if the court rolls back uh, you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, they've already rolled back, you know, union protections, uh, does away with environmental protections, but particularly those things that, that would hit the middle class really hard, really fast. And the wealthy states, California, New York, the populist states, mm -hmm. um, pick these things up and say, okay, we're going to, you know, because the court, this is the whole thing of the court, the Tenth Amendment, just let the states do it, right? Let, let them mm -hmm. figure out how they want to administer it. So we end up with with you know a dozen or so states that are populous enough and wealthy enough that they can actually fund good schools, you know, and they end public schools, right, and things like that, mm -hmm. which they want to do. I mean, it's part of their agenda to end public schools. So let's say that they do this, and it goes to the states, and we end up with a dozen or more states that become sort of like European countries, you know, uh, good places mm -hmm. to live, and then we and then we've got another 20 or 30 states that are the, the you know this, these so-called red states where people are living in poverty, they're oppressed by their employers, they have no health care. You know, right now in Mississippi, we've got infant mortality rates that are, that are, that are similar to those of most third world countries. Um, you know, at what point does this turn into civil war? Or at what point does this turn into a country being torn apart? <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, um, it's good that you raised that because that's something that's been on my mind too. The people who are the architects of this cause think in a very um, cold, logical way and think that they can manipulate the environment and people endlessly to achieve their goals. But I think that you're absolutely right, that they are tearing our country apart. They are deliberately turning us against one another. They are using racism strategically, as in promoting the myth of widespread voter fraud, um, you know, in which it's suggested that it's people of color who shouldn't be voting, et cetera. So this is really, really scary, high-stakes stuff. Uh, and this is also a cause we need to understand, and I found in my research, that uh, came together in the late 1950s in the Jim Crow South, uh, a cause that thinks nothing of using such racism strategically in order to move their project of economic liberty, and that also advocates actions on the spectrum of secession, as someone I wrote about puts it, uh, in order to achieve the will of capital. So they would like nothing better than to have mass secession, right? Um, you know, because that, that decreases the collective power of the people through things like labor unions and the AARP and, you know, government and stuff and increases the power of capital. Uh, so this is highly calculated. It is just deeply strategic. And another thing for you to know, though, too, is you're talking about those states like California and New York. These guys are so strategic that one of the things they built into the Trump tax bill was a measure to make it so that wealthy people in states like New York and California could no longer deduct their state and local income taxes. So that is deliberate social engineering in order to turn the wealthy people of those states against things like good public schools, you know, health care protections and so forth. And one of the, the strategists for this project, Stephen Moore, who's worked with the Heritage Foundation and many, many other groups, the Wall Street Journal, has said that if, if the wealthy people, taxpayers in those states don't like it, they should just move. So, so, so I think what we have to realize is that the right that we are dealing with now in America is playing an incredibly strategic, integrated, multi-part long game, whereas the last has been siloed, reactive, not seeing the whole picture, not articulating a big, uh, you know, overarching message. And it is really time to get serious, to understand what the other side is about, uh, and to think about how we are going to protect, and, and I'm not exaggerating here, the popular achievements of the 20th century. Yeah. From the progressive era through the New Deal, through the civil rights era, the environmental era, and more. All of those things are now at risk. Well, all of those things are actually a, not just at risk. Scott Pruitt being is, undermined as yeah, we speak. Yeah, uh, yeah. Scott Pruitt's tearing apart the EPA. Ryan Zinke yes. is selling off public lands. Mick Mulvaney yep. is destroying banking regulations and consumer protections. Uh, you know, Donald Trump is openly promoting racism. I mean, it's just yeah. just the the whole thing. It's like it's but like think, a whole cloth. I think in some ways too. I think people on the progressive side, and this includes our elected officials, sometimes get overwhelmed by the the, the sheer number of radical rules changes happening, and yeah. we can get into the weeds with those particular changes. And I think what the American people need to understand is the big picture of all of this, of where it's going. And the big picture of all of this is that Charles Koch himself has been very clear that the kind of world he wants to bring in is not desired by the majority of the people. He actually said at the time he he really started uh, working on this in earnest in, in uh, 1997, 1998, he said, since we are greatly outnumbered, the failure to use our superior technology ensures failure. So he's basically Whoa. admitting that nobody wants this libertarian world, right? People are not going to vote for it. They're not going to ask for it. They're going to run from it if they understand it. And that is why this cause right. is using a strategy. Nancy, we're we're, we're hitting a break here, but you're absolutely okay. right. And the book is uh, Democracy in Chains. Hang on just a second, Nancy. This is the Tom Hartman Program. That always steps on me. Nancy McLean, uh, Democracy in Chains. Nancy, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It's great talking with you. We'll be back. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high-tech. And yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. 
The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-Chair. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com right now. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Now back to the podcast. Welcome back to the place where smart people get their news. From smart people like Richard Wolf, Professor Richard Wolf is on the line with us, the economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work, uh, author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, essays on the global economic meltdown. His website, democracyatwork.info or rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Dr. Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. It is so nice to have you with us. Uh, I, I, I wanted to uh, conflate two issues and drop them in your lap and, and get your thoughts on it. Uh, on the one hand, we are very close to, in my opinion, returning to a Lochner-era court where everything literally from Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, workman's compensation, unemployment compensation, uh, workplace safety rules, um, all of these you know, environmental regulations, all of these things could simply be struck down by the court and revert to the states where we might end up with California and New York being nice places to live and the rest of the country turning into Bangladesh. Um, so we've got that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we've got this piece in today's Washington Post that points out that we're already halfway there. Only, and I'm quoting this by Van, Andrew Van Dam, and it's titled, It's Great to Be a Worker in the U.S.? No, not compared with the rest of the developed world. And they looked at us versus all the, the, the other 34 OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the 34 richest countries. Only Spain and Greece, ravaged by the Eurozone crisis, have more households earning less than half the nation's median income, and the United States. The United States and Mexico are the only countries that don't require advance notice for, for individual firings. We rank at the bottom of employee protections for mass layoffs. When you lose your job, and in the United States, I'm quoting from this article, it's harder to find another. Even when Americans do find another job, their earnings don't recover. U.S. unemployment benefits provide less support in the first year of unemployment than those in any other country in the world. Only 12% of U.S. workers are covered by the union's collective bargaining. We're down there with Turkey and Lithuania. And workers' share of national income has dropped eight percentage points since 1995. Uh, that puts us uh, right there with Poland. Um, where does this lead? What does this mean for this country? Well, it does. It speaks to several things. For the first, it clarifies what seems to mystify all kinds of commentators. That on the one hand, we have an official unemployment rate. Uh, as low as it has been able to get for most of the post-World War II period. On the other hand, we have an enormous part of our population, bitter, angry, dissatisfied, and able to point to a pinched standard of living, notwithstanding these unemployment numbers. And this is supposed to be a mystery. But of course it isn't, as the OECD documents and the Washington Post story make so clear. Because the minute you go beneath the gross number, the aggregate number of unemployed, and look at what people are actually doing, then you quickly discover that over the last 25 years, good jobs, that is jobs that are secure, jobs that have plenty of benefits, jobs that are interesting and, and take place in an environment that doesn't make you sick, have been given up and lost by the tens of millions to be replaced by jobs that are insecure, even to the point of not knowing, as millions of Americans don't, how many hours they'll work next week, whether those hours will be consistent with their childcare responsibilities or not. <clears throat> Excuse me. They don't have any benefits to speak of. 
including the future, the pension that they may uh, have to face in the years ahead. And so, yes, they have a job, but everything that a job was supposed to provide has been taken away or at least reduced. And so you have this upset, this anger, this bitterness. And what the Washington Post story nicely also adds to this is that we are at the bottom of the heap, as your comparison showed, when it comes to doing anything for people who are either unemployed or are uh, faced with jobs that can't provide them with enough. The government has been cut back. And I think it is not anymore, as it used to be, an exaggeration to say what you said about New York and California and maybe a few other places being the favored places and the rest of the country a kind of neglected backwater. That scenario that exists in countries we used to think were light years uh, behind us is now coming home like chickens to roost because we have a government so completely run by and subservient to corporate America that they will do anything to save the costs and to increase the profits of those who are their patrons and to let the chips fall where they may. And all the Washington Post did today was show you where those chips are and who they're falling on. You uh, are not only an economist, I, I think of you as a, uh, uh, you know, we don't have a good kind of secular word for it, but a prophet or a seer. In other words, you're able to, to look at the, the trends of history, long trends, multi-generational trends, multi-century trends of history, um, put them in, a, in a, both an economic and a political frame and draw conclusions uh, that could be called predictive. Um, the question I've been asking for the last hour and a half on this program is, are we on the verge of, or are we already there, of this country literally being torn apart? Of, uh, you know, uh, we had uh, Nancy McLean on, the author of Democracy in Chains, and she talked about how, how uh, you know, one of these petrobillionaires was actually saying that he was in favor of, of individual states uh, engaging in mass secession from the United States as another way of de diminishing federal power and authority. Um, it, to what extent do you think that we are looking at uh, a, essentially a second civil war, not necessarily one where people are shooting at each other, although you know, people actually are already killing each other. We had this woman killed in the, in the uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, you know, uh, tiki torch rally. Um, but um, but, a, but, a, but a, a tearing apart of this country uh, that goes beyond simply you know, the, the reality right now that, that, that women living in Mississippi are more likely to die in childbirth in the United States than they are even in many third world countries. You know, three times, 300% more likely to die in childbirth than in Canada or in California. I mean, we're already sort of there, but, you know, do you see this just ripping this country apart? At this point, I, I think there is no basis other than to answer your question, yes. I come at it with the same kind of question, but a slightly different angle. In my head, as I look at history, I see glorious empires, the Greek, the Roman, the Russian, the British, and now the United States display the same situation, an explosive growth from humble beginnings, a revelation of the possibility of wealth beyond anything they had imagined, the enjoyment of that wealth, the beginning to see the accumulation of wealth pretty much as an end in itself, and then the inevitable overreach, the misunderstanding that the real wealth of a nation is always its people, not its machines, not its navy, etc., etc. And so then, in each case, adventures abroad that become more difficult, more expensive, and can't be won. But even worse, using up resources that might otherwise have held the domestic society together, but aren't available for that, so that the domestic conflicts are not managed, and so the two sides, foreign and domestic, feed each other, while those at the top, with wealth beyond their imaginations, keep thinking everything's okay, everything will work itself out, until that day comes 
when it all crashes. And I see that, and I, this is not me. I don't normally look like this about these things. I'm not an alarmist. I think history works slowly. But I have become convinced over the last several years that this time really is different, that we are not, uh, we don't have a way out. I don't see one. And the conservative and middle-of-the-road economists that I speak with as a regular part of my life, we don't agree on how we got into this mess, and we don't agree on how to get out of it. But what we do agree on, which amazes us, is that this is the worst condition of the American economy that any of us have ever experienced in our lives, and we all have gray hair. Mm. So this, this is indeed a perception you have that a greater number of people are beginning to share, and with each passing day's headlines, you see more and more evidence. You mentioned a woman in, in the South. I was struck over the last few days by the story of the woman trapped by a subway in Boston who, in pain and bleeding, pleads with the people around her not to get the expensive ambulance because she can't afford it. Could they find her an ambulance that will get her to the hospital less expensively? I mean, it tore my heart out to understand we've reached that level. Of, of privation and inequality in this society. Yeah, it, 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 it truly is a disaster, sir. We have just 20 seconds, so we hit a hard break here. Uh, D Jared Bernstein had invited me to the White House during the Obama presidency when he was the chief economist for Joe Biden, and we had a right. lengthy conversation and debate, frankly, about some of the policies. He's now saying he thinks a, a Great Depression is inevitable in the next year or two. Uh, do you agree with that? I think that if you push through these tariffs and trade wars, together with whatever else is going on, this is a dying empire flailing around, and it could set off cataclysms beyond anything we have foreseen. Wow. Professor Richard Wolff, economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, democracyatwork.info. Thank you, Dr. Wolff. Talk to you again soon, Tom. Indeed. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back with, uh, we're going to be back with Bob Nay with Talk Media News in just a moment. Stick around. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Jim in Cleveland, Ohio. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'll be I'll be brief. I just think that the Democrats need to uh, get and coalesce around a solid platform of Social Security, Medicare, everything, the New Deal that made the uh, society more profitable and people brought people out of poverty, and show them not only did it work and does it work that it can even work better. And we're all behind each other and let the representatives go to their own districts and tout that, knowing that uh, there's images of they're all together on this. They're standing on the Capitol stairs. They got they're wrapping themselves in the flag and they're all y'all, you know, they're all they're all together on how they can uh, not only profit the middle class, the working class and the poor, but also it's beneficial to the wealthy, too, because it creates a stronger society, a stronger marketplace, uh, a more profitable marketplace. There's no shining city on a hill if there isn't a good foundation underneath that city. Yeah. And that's what the safety net does for us. Jim, Jim, what you're it, describing actually is the Democratic Party platform. It's the platform that, that well, Hillary Clinton ran on. It's the platform that was written before the last presidential election and I continues understand. to be in effect. Uh, the Democrats, uh, the, the, the challenge is messaging, and it's not that there aren't good Democrats providing a good message and trying to get it into the media, it's that the media will basically not book Democrats onto the, uh, particularly onto the bigger shows, unless they want to talk about Donald Trump. And well, let's take it right on onto the Capitol steps, and maybe we'll get some coverage that way. And 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 say, you know, vote blue. Republicans have nothing for you. And yeah. one more thought: if Donald Trump Trump wants that wall, he can go to the rich donors that uh, he gave a big tax cut to, and go ask them for the money and see what they tell you. Yeah, there you go. Okay, <laughs> well said. Run them out on a rail. Yeah, Jim, thanks a lot for the call. 
Ken watching us on Facebook Live over in Phoenix, Arizona. Ken, what's on your mind? Hi, uh, the news about Ed Schultz prompted me to make this call. And, you know, I listened to Ed for a long time, and I disagreed with him in many cases. But he actually, I think it was TPP, he went against what most progressives were saying. And at one point, he actually turned around and said, you know, I was wrong yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah, and I not know. Not only that, here's why I was wrong. And the point I want to make is, you know, Bernie has been on your show several times, and three times specifically that I can remember. One of your callers would ask him a question, and he would say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. And... How does that compare to many Republicans who always have to snap answer? One of your previous callers mentioned a bumper sticker. And if you have a bumper sticker mentality, I would suggest that maybe you're incapable of a deep thought. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, critical, critical thinking is something that we have lost badly. Ken, excellent points all. Thanks. James in Glendale, Texas. Hey, James. Thanks for watching Free Speech yeah. TV. What's, uh, wait, real quick, please. We're, oh, we're hitting the break right now. We're in the break. In fact, we're, we're, ba we're bailing out of the show. J James, you're going to have to call back tomorrow. I'm sorry. We're, we're out of time here. Thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there. Get active. Tag. You're it. There is so much that needs to be done. This is such a vitally important election. You know, please, the caller earlier suggested get three people registered to vote, African-American or anybody else, particularly, you know, young people, working class people. Get your friends registered. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.